Hello, and welcome to 13, the bi-weekly podcast where we ask questions of Colgate University community members. And today, I am thrilled to be joined by Christian A. Johnson, Associate Professor of Theater and Chair of the Theater Department, Christian DeCombe. Professor DeCombe teaches theater history, dramatic literature, and performance studies. He's previously taught at Haverford College and Brown University, where he received his PhD in theater and performance studies in 2012. Professor DeCombe's first book, Haunted City, Three Centuries of Racial Impersonation in Philadelphia, uh, was published by Michigan Press in 2017, and that traces the deep roots of Philadelphia's annual Mummers Parade through the city's history of blackface minstrelsy and other forms of racial impersonation. His essays and reviews on a variety of topics have appeared in Theater Magazine, Modern Drama, Performance Research, Theater Journal, TDR, The Drama Review, and The Washington Post, as well as several edited collections. Professor DeCombe, welcome to 13. Thanks for having me. So I always like to start off with a little bit of a background primer for our listeners. And I would just love to know a little bit about your background and how you gravitated toward the theater and your path to Colgate. Okay, well, uh, boy, where to start? Um so I've been interested in theater since I was a kid. Um, I was I was pretty shy as as a young kid, and my godfather, um, for my sixth birthday, I want to say, uh, he signed me up for an acting class at the Kennedy Center in Washington D.C., where I was born, and um, I just loved it. I, I absolutely thrived on stage. I felt like I could um, could be myself, could be expressive. And, um, you know, I kept doing theater really through elementary school, middle school, high school, college. Um, I had other interests, too. I, I played classical clarinet. Um, I wrote for the high school newspaper. But theater was always the, the sort of abiding passion. Um, and I didn't think I would pursue it professionally. But when I, uh, when I was an undergraduate, I discovered that I could combine my interest in theater, my love for theater, with the fact that I was also interested in history and interested in literature, that there was such a thing as a theater scholar. Um, and that really kind of stuck in my mind as something that I might want to do. So um, I had a, a Watson Fellowship after college, and I spent a year traveling and studying theater internationally. And then I ended up in Philadelphia, where I worked for a few years as the, uh, the managing director of a small modern dance company got involved in the local theater scene, and got really interested in the Mummers Parade. So then ultimately, um, when I went to graduate school, the I knew that the Mummers Parade was something that I wanted to to write about, um, and the history connected to it. And that led to a dissertation and a first book project. So And uh, and as for how I came to Colgate, you know, the, the academic job market being what it is, um, I don't think I'd ever been... Uh, north of Poughkeepsie, so I, I really knew nothing about upstate New York, but I knew that Colgate was an excellent school, and they were advertising a position um, in theater history and dramaturgy right as I was finishing up with my graduate work, and I applied and was fortunate enough to be hired, and I've really, uh, I've loved it here. You know, it's, um, the students are are amazing, um, they're hardworking, they're bright, uh, they're a lot of fun. And I have wonderful colleagues in my department, so um, it's been it's been really a pleasure. 
uh, as someone who always thought of myself as a as a city person, um, you know, rural upstate New York <laughs> wasn't an obvious choice. Um, but I've I also you know I love the liberal arts college environment. Nice. I want to dig in a little bit to the Mummers. Uh, sure. Parade. Yeah. And I think for people who aren't from Philadelphia or maybe not accustomed to the idea, maybe we can just start off with what is a mummer and then what is the Mummers Parade? Okay. Well, the Mummers Parade um, has been an institution in Philadelphia since 1901. It's essentially um, like a city-organized and sponsored community parade um, that these days has about 8,000 participants in five different competing categories. Um, So people from neighborhoods in South Philadelphia, Northeast Philadelphia, um, some of the Pennsylvania and New Jersey suburbs, um, they rehearse sometimes year-round to march up Broad Street and compete on New Year's Day um, for for city-sponsored prizes and recognition uh, for comic performances, for string band performances, um, for fancy club performances, which are kind of like Broadway-style choreography and costumes uh, performed in the middle of the street. And and as for the history of this tradition, um, it goes back to the earliest European settlements um, in what's now Philadelphia, um, Swedish and English settlements in the 1600s, where people engaged in the Northern European tradition of holiday house visiting and costuming and the specifically English tradition of performing mummers plays, which are are kind of um, satirical sketches, sometimes partly improvised, often performed um, in black makeup, where people generally from the lower classes show up at the homes of the upper classes asking for food and drink um, and a little bit of revelry. And there's, um, you know, it's a it's a convivial performance, but there's a bit of an edge to it because if you don't give the the men outside the door in their black makeup some food and drink, you know, they might get a little rowdy, right? So, um, so this tradition, uh, because it has these unruly folk origins, um, it was sometimes associated in, in Philadelphia in the 19th century with violence um, between neighborhood gangs, uh, sometimes along racial or ethnic lines between Christmas and New Year's. And so part of why the city organized a parade was to try to contain that violence, to contain those community folk celebrations that could very easily get out of control and and create something that happened you know, in a space that could be monitored during the day not on Christmas, on New Year's, so getting it away from the religious holiday. And um, the city's organizing efforts stuck, and uh, and the parade, despite you know some fall-off in participation and attendance in recent years, um, has remained part of the city's identity and culture. And I think the, the struggles the parade is having now um, most immediately have to do with the COVID-19 pandemic and, of course, the prohibition on gathering in public um, that we all lived with for a couple of years. But even before that, um, the parade had started to have problems with homophobic, racist, and sexist performances, which frankly 
have always been part of what goes on on New Year's Day, um, sometimes on the official parade route and sometimes on the edges of the parade. The difference in the past decade or so has been smartphones and the fact that everybody has a video camera in their pocket. So some of these performances that maybe um, would have only been rumored um, in, say, the 1980s or 1990s or even 2000s started showing up on YouTube and really mm. sparking outrage, justified outrage, I think, and conversation among the Mummers community about how to make the parade more inclusive. Because most Mummers, most Mummers are white. Um, most of them are, you know, middle or working class, have pretty deep roots in Philly. However, most of them are not racist and are not homophobes. They're out there to celebrate something that's, you know, often a family tradition going back generations. Um, but there's a, uh, there are a small number of people who, um, you know, kind of insist on continuing to, say, perform in blackface or to, um, you know, satirize transgender people, uh, to engage in, in other kinds of performances that really, I think, turn off a lot of Philadelphians from wanting to support or participate in the parade. So that's the conversation that's been going on the past few years is, you know, um, can this tradition be saved? Is it worth saving? And um, and what would it take to make the Mummers Parade actually represent the city um, and be sort of the, the beautiful, brilliant folk art celebration that it can be for everybody and not just for people from the more traditional mumming communities. Hmm. So it makes me wonder, has the tradition of the parade always been, I don't want to say lawless, but without guidelines, like people could kind of come up with whatever they wanted in the parade and that's why you kind of have this uh, situation where people are taking it to extremes or is it that um, that the framework itself supports that type of performance? That That's a great question and the answer strangely enough, is is both. Um, I think that the origins of the parade were pretty lawless, right? Mm. Um, but over time, as the parade became more organized, um, the city set up a pretty Byzantine judging structure, um, which includes a lot of categories in which no one competes any longer, um, like aspects of the parade tradition that have just for one reason or another, atrophied or died out. So there's this long list of categories in which people can win prizes. And some of them, year after year, have no entrance, right? But that judging structure has not, to my knowledge, been revised or updated in decades, um, probably not since the, um, the 1960s, although I'm not 100% sure of that date. And so now when, um, say, like, in recent years, a Puerto Rican bomba group has marched in the parade. Um, a Khmer dance drama has been staged in the parade. Um, African-American step groups are regular participants in the parade. They can't win prizes because there are no categories to recognize their performances. Hmm. So the only performances that really that, that achieve official recognition right, fit into this structure um, that at this point is obsolete. So... Um, one of the problems with the parade, I think, is that that needs updating, right? Um, and I think that for people who want to be part of the Mummers Parade but whose 
traditions, performance traditions from their community aren't recognized by the judging structure, it always feels like they're add-ons. Hmm. Um, and there are sanctions in the parade for people who perform explicitly racist, uh, in explicitly racist ways. I mean, since 1964, blackface makeup has been banned on the parade route, but it always kind of shows up around the edges. And, and when I say the edges, you know, the parade, people start gathering um, basically after, you know, not having slept on New Year's Eve, often still drinking in the early morning hours oh. to get. Uh, so, you know, things are sort of rowdy at five or six in the morning um, and things stay rowdy um, after the sun goes down and people gather on the side streets, uh, particularly uh, Second Street, uh, which locals call Two Street, um, where there's there's sort of an after hours parade, and that space is much less regulated, and that's where you see, um, th- that that's where the parade is at its most convivial, but also its most ugly, mm. um, when it really is just the mummers themselves and their biggest fans, you know, on a narrow street in South Philly, um, parading until ten or eleven o'clock at night, um, y- you know, th- things things come out that you'd rather not see, mm. but um, but people also bond and form community in in really meaningful ways. So it's it's a there are a lot of contradictions to it, and that's one of the things that's fascinated me about it for so long. Do you do you participate every year, or do you go to see it every year? Well, so I I did participate for four years while I was researching um, my dissertation, and um, and I continued to the first year I was at Colgate, um, New Year's two thousand thirteen. I participated, um, but I have not participated since then. I have been back to see the parade um, on a couple of occasions. Um, And, you know, I'm ambivalent about that. I would have liked to stay involved. um, But also, when I started publishing about the Mummers, um, you know, not everybody necessarily liked what I had to say, Um, Mm. particularly the, the aspects of my book that are critical of some of the racist origins of the tradition and particularly its connection to the minstrel show, which is something that a lot of mummers either disavow or don't want to talk about, even even if they do acknowledge that um, historically it's accurate. And so um, I've not, I haven't felt in any way, you know, marginalized, but I guess um, the thing about being a participant observer um, and then stepping away and writing, you know, a scholarly book about a tradition is it, it's it's put me in a bit of an awkward position to continue to be a participant. And my research interests have also moved on to other things, which which I can talk about at some point if if you want me to. But, Definitely, yeah, we can okay. we can move on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's fascinating though. Um, I do have one last question about that. Yeah, too. sure. I, do you know? So, are there? Is there a movement within the community of performers that do participate um, to make uh, bigger changes? There definitely is. And um, so and I, I should say um, that I was part of that movement in a, a peripheral way when I was still performing in the parade because the group that I joined, um, the Vaudevillains Comic Brigade, they, they have been – some of the most persistent um, activists for change. Um, it's not a traditional mummers group. Um, they compete in the comic category, which is one of the traditional categories of the parade. 
and they stage political satire, which is also traditional. Um, but the people in the brigade, um, you know, it was founded at an arts collective in Chinatown called Space 1026. Um, many of the members of the brigade are queer, people of color. Um, there are a lot of people who are not originally from Philadelphia, including me. Um, a lot of people who are, you know, professionals and academics, as well as people who, you know, drive trucks and wait tables and things like that. Um, so it, it's, uh, you know, and and when the group started out, I was not involved in the very beginning, but I joined several years after it had been formed. And there was a, um, I think, a certain amount of, like, self-othering that went on, if that makes sense. Like, when we would hang out with other mummers, we felt like, oh, they're going to think we're the weirdos, right? And that wasn't the case at all. They were very mm -hmm. happy to have us there because, as I heard many times, they wanted to see young people in the parade and they wanted to see people who were not, you know, from the traditional mummers neighborhoods. And that kind of blew us away, especially because um, a lot of people in this group are pretty great performers and we tended to do well with the judges. And so um, the other brigades that were affiliated with ours uh, under the auspices of one of the larger comic clubs they liked that because we improved their scores. <laughs> um, but then in, in subsequent years, you know, the vaudevillains have really spoken up about what they see as, you know, the, the legacies of, um, of racism, of misogyny, of homophobia that still haunt the parade, hence the title of my book, Haunted mm. City. And, um, and that's, you know, some mummers are very receptive to that and really want to be part of that conversation. Other people, I think, feel threatened by it. And many people just feel like it isn't really what they're there for, right? Like they participate in the parade to have fun, mm -hmm. um, not to engage in, you know, the, the difficult work of diversity, equity, and inclusion, right? So, um, so there, is, um, there is definitely tension around that, um, but it, it's something that the vaudevillains have really been pushing for with, you know, some along with some other groups in the parade. Um, but the vaudevillains have been, well, they, they've been at it the longest, I guess, in terms of what I would um, loosely call the reform movement within the Mummers. Interesting. Yeah. So you are currently the director of the theater department here at Colgate. Yeah, that's and, true. <laughs> um, can you tell us a little bit about what is happening this semester within theater? Yeah, so there's a lot going on in the theater department right now. Um, we have, let's see, um, in just a couple of weeks, my colleague April Sweeney, uh, she is opening a production of a play called um, called We Are Pussy Riot or Everything is PR by Barbara Hammond. And it's a play about Pussy Riot, the um, the punk activist group that in 2012 um, staged a protest in Moscow uh, that got them arrested in uh, under a minute um, and that have since become sort of notorious uh, Russian political dissidents and performance art stars around the world um, after some of them did spend time in prison. And I think, um, I think April got interested in this play because of what's going on right now in Ukraine and feeling like... Um, you know what trying to look back a decade to um to political protest movements that were quashed mm -hmm. in in Russia and to think about 
how maybe things could have turned out differently. Um, and just to draw attention to that part of the world, which people are trying to do in a lot of areas of the Colgate curriculum right now, and, and rightly so, because sure. there there's this awful war going on and, and none of us know how it's going to end. And certainly there are people in the community with um, you know direct connections to Russia or Ukraine or both. So um, I'm very excited about this play. Um, we've got a wonderful ensemble of students in the cast, some of whom have never acted before, which is going to be great. Um, we also have three senior thesis productions, um, a musical, Something Rotten, which is going to be a tremendous amount of fun, uh, directed by Jenny Wu, who's one of our senior theater majors. Um, another senior major, uh, Diego Abanto, has written an original play, um, which is going to be staged at the end of the semester. And then Joey Bloom and other majors um, working on a kind of chamber musical, small musical theater piece that's also going to be performed in, in late April or early May. Um, and then on top of all that, we also have our annual um, spring dance concert, um, which my colleague uh, Yildiz Guventurk is directing. Um, that's, uh, you know, many people are, are familiar with Dance Fest at Colgate, which is such a fun event and one of the most popular student events on campus. Um, the spring dance concert is something a little bit different. It's students in the advanced contemporary dance course that we offer, um, developing their their own choreography and, and doing work that's often, you know, a little bit more um, experimental, a little bit more, um, for lack of a better word, academic than what goes on at Dance Fest. But many of the same students are involved in both. Um, so I'm really looking forward to that as well. So, yeah, um, five shows between now and the end oh, of the semester. Not busy at all down there. No, no, no. Uh, you know, um, it, it's, we're really lucky to have, you know, an amazing technical director in Bremer Theater um, and just really dedicated students and staff who help to make all of this happen. Um, but the theater department, um, since becoming an independent department because theater was a program of English at Colgate for a long, long time. Oh. Um, and we've been a department now for six or seven years and we've had the support from the university to, to grow. Um, and so we know we have a larger faculty, we have more courses and we have more productions going on, which is very exciting, but it's, it, it always feels like we're kind of pushing up against the limits of what we can do. Um, in you know the space and time that we have available, um, but it's also it's just great to see um, more and more students you know involved in in theater at all these different levels, um, you know. And the department has been working more with student theater groups as well. Um, Something Rotten, the musical that Jenny Wu is directing, um, we've partnered with Mask and Triangle, which is the largest and oldest student theater group at Colgate for that production. So we're bringing together like some of our resources and know-how and some of their support from student activities and the president's office to, um, to put on a, a big musical, which is not something that we're able to do very often just because it is so resource intensive. And it takes a lot of students who are willing to be very committed. Um, but the, the stars aligned this semester for that to happen. I would love to get some of them in here to perform like a little <laughs> snippet, you know, that would be really fun. I think it would be, I mean, or, you know, um, well, maybe you can record, um, uh, we're, we're talking about live streaming, um, 
one or maybe a couple of the performances. We've had some alums express interest in that. They really want to see what's going on in the theater. And there's some technical constraints um, and also sometimes rights issues when we're doing um, new plays. But we were able to, um, and and I shouldn't take credit for this at all. It was the students that did it. But um, we were able to get streaming rights for Something Rotten. So now we're just trying to um, figure out how to um, how to make it work technically and how to publicize it so people people who might be listening to this podcast who don't live in Hamilton can check out the show. Ooh, so more to yeah. come there. Yeah, I like yeah. that. And yeah. a nice tie in to our global leader this year, uh, Glo- global leader speaker. Um, it's a series at Colgate that happens annually, and this year we're going to be welcoming to campus Misty Copeland on April fourteenth. We are all so excited about that in the theater department, especially since we've been growing uh, dance as part of our curriculum. I mean, one of our aspirations is to become a department of theater and dance um, and maybe eventually to offer a dance minor. Um, we're we're not there yet, but um, we're, we're on our way. And um, one of the two faculty members who's going to interview Ms. Copeland on stage is my colleague Amy Swanson, who's a wonderful dance scholar, um, pre-tenure faculty member uh, here at Colgate in the theater department, and who's been teaching um, you know, amazing uh, studio courses on uh, composition, choreography, and technique, but also teaching dance studies. Um, she, like Amy's own research, she's a, um, she writes about modern dance in West Africa and specifically in Senegal. Um, and so she's been, you know, adding academic courses on dance to the curriculum, which to my knowledge is not something that, that Colgate had ever really offered before. So I'm very excited to, to see Amy in, in conversation with Misty Copeland and, um, and just to shine a spotlight on dance at Colgate with, um, you know, such a wonderful, prominent guest. It's very cool. Yeah. Um, and that ties in nicely with you folks are located in the Dana Art Center. Yes, Dana we Arts are. Building. Um, yeah. And soon there will be the Benton Center for Arts, Creativity, and Innovation. And I'm curious how you see that space uh, helping to uh, improve or change the offerings of theater or just, um, I guess, how might that influence theater um, classes and productions at Colgate? That that's another great question, and and I think um, so. Just to back up for a second, you, you know the middle campus plan, which some of your listeners may be familiar with, is very ambitious, right? So um, the the Benton Center is the first of what will be um, several buildings um, or major building renovations, um, and you know, and some some ambitious new landscaping as well. Um, so I'd say in, in terms of the theater department, the Benton Center is is more focused on computer science and film and media studies, but there are some things um, going into that building that I'm excited about for theater and dance. Um, and most notably, um, the experimental exhibition and performance space, which is basically a, um, a gallery space, like roughly the footprint of the Clifford Gallery, but it's going to have a couple of things um, that make it suited for performance. It's going to have a theatrical lighting grid and instrumentation, so um, we'll be able to to light things in there either for you know a, a more traditional gallery show or a performance. 
And it's also going to have a removable dance floor. So people will be able to come in and, you know, if it's a gallery show, like a hard concrete floor, like you would expect. But if there's a performance going on, we'll be able to put down a surface um, that is usable for performers um, without the risk of injury. So I'm not exactly sure what's going to happen in the space. And that's exactly what's so exciting about it. Like it could be, you know, small scale um, dance composition pieces could be performed in there. Um, a visiting artist who does performance art could perform in there. Um, the performance studies course that I've co-taught with um, Mary Simonson and film and media studies, we could offer that course in the experimental exhibition and performance space and, and have students use that essentially as their laboratory um, for performance exper experiments throughout the semester. Um, so I think a lot of really great stuff is going to come of that. Um, there's also, like, connected to that space, there's going to be a fabrication lab, um, which will be a, a new home for, for digital art at Colgate. Um, and very exciting to, to us in theater because it will allow for the fabrication of scenic elements that we can't build in our scene shop. Mm -hmm. Um, there's going to be a digital loom, which may really change um, what we can do in terms of um, both making costumes for performance, but also teaching uh, fabric art um, through our design program in the theater department. Um, so lo lots of possibilities um, and and I think a lot of enthusiasm and also, you know, looking further into the future, um, we're, one of the parts of the middle campus plan that's um, coming coming down the road in you know five ten years um, will be a new black box theater like a flexible one hundred fifty seat theater um, as well as a renovation of Bremer Theater um, our existing space which seats about three hundred if you include the balcony and having those two spaces you know it's potentially going to enable us to do more productions or to collaborate um, more congenially with student theater because we're not fighting for the same studios and the same stage. Um, and to, and also to think about productions kind of on different scales because Bremer is Bremer's great when you want a, a larger stage and a larger audience, but being able to do work that's more intimate um, mm -hmm. and then and to have public showings for some of our theater classes where right now we invite audience to come into the studio, right? But you can only seat you know, a couple dozen people and it doesn't really feel like a formal presentation because there's very little in the way of lights or audio. So to be able to have an advanced acting class, say like stage a final performance in a black box theater, I, I think it will give those courses like a sense of seriousness and purpose and also um, a visibility to the community that they don't always have now. Hmm. Um, so we're very excited about that too. And uh, in, in the meantime, you know, uh, the, I, I have a construction site outside my office window, <laughs> um, and I just have to remind myself every day that you know it's it's all it's all for the good, um, because when the Benton Center is built, and then when the next phases of the middle campus roll out, um, there's really going to be a lot to look forward to for the arts at Colgate. Yeah, I bet. Do you yeah. get a new office for having to sit next to the construction the whole time? I, you know, uh, that's above my pay grade. <laughs> You're going to have to ask someone else about that. Um, uh, but uh, but I do, uh, you know. I, I have learned that I can, in fact, grade while the building is literally shaking. So. Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, 
You know, speaking about your academic work and, and teaching in the classroom, what, what is your favorite course to teach? That That's a great question. So um, I, I have really enjoyed teaching the performance studies course that I mentioned um, with Mary Simonson, in part because um, team teaching is just so rewarding. And, um, and Mary and I are, we have complementary backgrounds. I mean, she was trained as a musicologist, and a lot of her research is in the history of dance on camera and the, the use of live performance elements in early film, right? And I'm trained in theater history, not in dance or music, but I also, you know, am interested in the intersection of different performance media in the 19th and early 20th centuries. So, like, Mary and I have a lot of the same vocabulary and reference points, but also some really different um, subject-specific expertise. So when we've taught together, you know, I, I feel like we've been able to, to introduce students to performance in its widest possible sense from theater and dance and music, you know, the traditional performing arts, to thinking about things like ritual or the presentation of self in everyday life as performance and giving students assignments like performance ethnography assignments on the Colgate campus where we ask them to take um, some everyday activity that happens at Colgate and frame it analytically as a performance and see what they can learn about it when they use sort of the vocabulary and techniques of critical performance observation or participant observation to try to unpack, um, you know, facets of campus life. So we've had students write, you know, brilliant papers about um, parties that they attended on Broad Street or about, you know, the uh, the rivalry between um, the two pizza places in the village <laughs> and uh, things that you just wouldn't expect, right? Um, and, and so that, that course has been incredibly rewarding. Um, I love teaching the theater history courses that, that I teach for the theater department. Um, that's Those are sort of my bread and butter courses. Um, and I've also really enjoyed teaching in the core curriculum, which um, much like coming to rural upstate New York was not something I expected I would do. But, you know, I mentioned earlier on that, like, I'm someone who, you know, I, I, I'm really interested in literature and history. I like to read a lot in a lot of different fields. One of the things that I enjoy about being at a liberal arts college is that it's not super specialized in the way a research university is. Like in my six and a half years of graduate school at Brown, you know, I, I can count on one hand the number of conversations I had with people who were not in theater or dance or music or film and media, mm -hmm. right? Um, and then within, you know, a week of coming to Colgate, uh, I first showed up for the, um, what used to be called White Eagle, the the core curriculum pedagogy retreat that happens every May. And I was talking to biologists and German literature scholars and, uh, you know, people that uh, who had really interesting things to say about the work that I do. And I found that I was really interested in hearing about what they do. And just that, that kind of um, atmosphere of interdisciplinary intellectual exchange that isn't siloed into, um, you know, divisions or departments, uh, I, it's it's energizing for me. And so the core has been 
just a just a wonderful place to teach because you you know you're constantly forced outside of your area of expertise and you're talking to colleagues who do very different kinds of things to try to get their insight and guidance on how to you know for me like how to teach the communist manifesto or how to teach nietzsche things that i've read but am by no means an expert in right mm. so um so that's that's just been a lot of fun and like a, a whole new form of learning as a faculty member that um that i never would have expected you know uh, before coming to to this place uh so you've been involved in the group. I know the core is old at Colgate. It's been around for a long time, but it's constantly changing in that the faculty kind of examine the works that are taught and the classes that are part of the core curriculum every so often. I don't know. What is it? Five years or something like um, that? It's generally every 10 years, 10 but, years, but the process takes five years. So it feels like every five years. <laughs> but, <you> know. <laughs> now, you were a part of the group that helped shepherd the latest core revision. That's Is that correct? Yeah, that's, that's correct. Um, so I'm the the university professor for challenges of modernity uh, core 152 and um, which which is now um, sunsetting it's in its last semester um, because core 151 and core 152 are going to be replaced by a new course called core conversations um, it was a long process to get there um, with I think a lot of uh <sighs> What's what's the best way to say this? I mean, um, it, it led to some uh, some real contention among members of the faculty that sometimes felt really intellectually productive and sometimes felt just like people were taking shots at each other mm-hmm. in not very constructive ways. So that was hard. Um, but I think that for me, um, and I'm only speaking for myself here, not for anyone else involved in the core. You know, I, I have loved teaching challenges of modernity and loved leading that component, but I have always felt that it had um, it had a sort of inescapable focus on modernity in the West, in Europe and the United States. And people tried to change that by introducing post-colonial critique into the course, but it, it always felt like um, that was in response to the Eurocentric orientation of the reading list. Mm. And so, um, as I mean, in my own sort of scholarly life, like I'm an Americanist, obviously, like I write about the history of American theater and performance. Um, but that history, you know, is a very, um, a very hybrid history that involves um, the intersection of lots of different cultures, including indigenous cultures and cultures of uh, Asia Pacific, and uh, and I just was not seeing that um, represented very well in the um, in Core One Fifty Two and Core One Fifty One, and I think for a lot of faculty who felt that way, we wanted a new course that was more um, globally inclusive, and there was definitely a faction um, among the faculty who, with you know, very good arguments and a lot of sincerity really pushed back on that, pushed back on a, a move away from um, really the, the, the remaining vestiges of um, the Great Books course, which is how Colgate's core originated in the 1920s. It, it was a Great Books course in the Western tradition, and um, there's so much value in courses like that, and there are still going to be courses like that at Colgate. They're just not going to be required anymore. 
And the course that all students have to take that is that is really the the common text course uh, is going to have a syllabus that's more diverse. Um, and I, I think that's all to the good um, at this moment in 2023 and, you know, a moment when the university is working hard on diversity, equity, and inclusion, and when, um, you know, and, and working hard to respond to things like the fact that we are on unceded Oneida land and that, um, you know, we've witnessed nationally um, so much uh, violence in recent years um, by law enforcement um, against African-Americans and others that's resulted in the Black Lives Matter movement. And it's just, uh, to my mind, you know, it's time for the curriculum to respond to some of those things that are happening on our campus and in the world. And I think that we are. Um, and I, I, I think it's, uh, it's probably no surprise and probably in the end a good thing that it, it was a long process to get there because I think what we came up with in the end was um, a more thoughtful and, and elegant approach to how to change the curriculum than, um, than what some of the things that you know I was thinking of or other colleagues were thinking of in the very first year of the core revision. So hmm. it, it, it took many years, but the, the many years of effort were worth it in the end. I'm going to play the role of uh, someone listening who might have a knee-jerk reaction. Yeah, that's um, totally fair. So so <laughs> what does this mean? Like Colgate students don't study Play-Doh anymore? No, uh, Colgate students are are still – so first of all, I mean, we have an, a, an amazing classics department um, where students are going to continue to study. Um, in my intro, introduction to drama course, I have always taught and will continue to teach um, Aristotle's Poetics and Plato's Allegory of the Cave. Because if you don't understand those two theories of representation, um, it's difficult to understand the history of Western drama. So uh, the the shift here is not um, it's not a rejection of the academic traditions that have made Colgate so strong. I think it's just resituating those academic traditions within departments. I mean, uh, uh, here's another way of putting it, right? Like. The core is supposed to be the place where we all meet, right? It's supposed to be the place where every student, every faculty member on this campus um, meets around a, a set of shared interests and concerns. Um, for a long time, those shared interests and concerns were defined largely in terms of the Western canon. And more and more people on this campus, faculty and students alike, were feeling alienated by that. Um, and no one, you know, to my knowledge, has been advocating for um, doing away with the Western tradition as an integral part of the Colgate curriculum. You know, it, it still is, and I think it probably always will be. Um, but people have been saying, you know, for um, well over a decade now, um, if the core is our common space, then why is it so uh, geographically and historically specific in terms of the areas of the world and the moments in human history that it covers. Mm -hmm. And uh, and that's a fair question. So I think the the new core, um, my hope is that, you know, it will g still give students um, a lot of the same training in how to um, read, write, and discuss critically um, challenging works from multiple disciplines, and that they'll be able to take that knowledge into their their major interests um, into their other courses, um, you know, as as better um, 
better discussion participants, better writers, um, better thinkers, and that students who want to study Plato and Aristotle and study ancient Greek um, are still going to have a lot of really rich offerings in the curriculum where they can do that, not just in classics, but also ju- just just a shout out for the theater department. <laughs> we still teach that stuff, too, because it's super important to the history of of the discipline that I teach, right? So um, so I, I totally understand that anxiety um, about and and really the the argument behind it that you know if if we're not teaching this tradition are we turning our back on something that's been a really important part of Colgate's identity for so long um but one of the ways in which the core has been a part of Colgate's identity i think is that we all read texts in common and we all argue about what those texts should be um as a community right and so to keep that argument going, say, what text should we all be reading and why? That's a really healthy thing intellectually. Um, and then to have students, you know, I overhear students and, and read in student evaluations all the time that the fact that they're reading the same books in their core classes as their peers who maybe are taking the core from a different professor or in a different semester and say, oh, wow, we read a, we had a totally different take on Nietzsche than you had in your class or hmm. um, uh, how interesting that you came away from Marx thinking this well I think that right um, those sorts of debates are still going to be happening they just might be around different texts and I think that's okay right the um, because we're, what we're preserving is the shared intellectual experience of um, of a course and it will now just be one course rather than two but a course where every Colgate student is going to read a common set of texts and changes aren't made lightly. It wasn't like a, a couple people got together and said, "We're going to change this." This is a process, right? And oh, we started before <laughs> we started before the pandemic, and uh, I, I mean, it, it really it's it's been a it's been a long <laughs> process. And did the faculty vote at the end of the day? Yeah, the faculty vote. Um, the faculty voted, you know, um, uh, to adopt the the new version of the core curriculum. Um, pretty overwhelmingly. Um, over 70% of the faculty voted in favor of it. Um, and that was after, you know, going through multiple drafts and iterations and and really, um, really trying to get it right. Mm-hmm. And I, I think, re- like, at our best moments as a faculty, we were listening to each other even when we disagreed and we were trying to incorporate, um, you know, uh, critiques of the revised version of the core Um even when those critiques were um, felt felt like they were intellectually at odds with the spirit of the new core, we realized, you know, that there has to be some there has to be some balance between tradition and innovation, right? There ha- the core in in service of bringing in more faculty and students who feel who have felt excluded, we can't leave out people who have, in many cases, you know, dedicated decades of their teaching career to the core, right? Like that is not a solution. So um, so it just took uh, a long time to kind of come together around um, a consensus is too strong a word, but like a, a, a large majority of the faculty saying, yeah, this curriculum is is a good representation of what we are about and it's going to prepare students to thrive in the world and give them 
the kinds of things that we value from a Colgate liberal arts education. Um, so, you know, four or five years in, we, we got there. Um, but the faculty voted in um, the winter of 2021, if, uh, if I'm remembering correctly, to adopt this new curriculum. And uh, the implementation period has been over the course of this year. So okay. we've been going through like the mechanics of rolling out new requirements, relabeling courses where necessary, um, making sure that all students get the classes that they need, that no one gets caught between you know the old set of graduation requirements and the new one. Mm. And then beginning uh, in the fall of 2023, we will be fully in the the new core and then in about 10 years we'll have another <laughs> really uh really fun uh f- community fight and debate about <laughs> what the core should be and uh and by then I'll be an old fogey and and you know tell it, telling telling uh, the one thing that I've promised myself is that you know I'm I'm going to I'm going to speak up for the people who are a generation behind me, even if what they want to do with the core doesn't totally make sense to me because there was a, and, and this is a, an, an overgeneralization, but like there was something of a generational split oh, um, in, in yeah. the debate around the core. And, and it was a, you know, it was a lot of people, who, I'm not so young, I'm 43, but people who are, um, you know, on the younger side of the faculty saying, Hey, well, why don't we, why don't we mix this up? And then people who, you know, had really invested a lot of their um, a lot of their professional lives to the existing course, saying, "Hey, wait a minute! The, what this curriculum does something really valuable, and we shouldn't we shouldn't tinker with it lightly." Um, and so, you know, again, bringing those two points of view together was hard but worth it. Were there any uh, texts in particular you're excited that are going to be taught now, or at least are now part of the core? Well, so um, there's there's still there are a lot of possibilities that are in the mix. Um, the faculty is going to make a final choice on the text list for core conversations uh. at this year's core pedagogy retreat um, in May. Okay. Uh, but I'm I'm excited. Uh, I'm excited that Aristotle is still in the mix. <laughs> uh, I'm also excited that we're uh, considering um, adding an Oneida text, a, a version of the Oneida creation myth. As a way uh, of really um, getting students to think critically about where we are living and learning, um, and what what is the tradition of this land um, and the people who inhabited it that predate the existence of Colgate University, um, and I think that could connect outward into um, looking at you know the cultural and physical geography of the Central New York region as part of the core conversations course, which would be really exciting. Um, You know, there are a lot of other texts that are under discussion and that people are experimenting with teaching right now. Um, And, uh, you know, we'll see, uh, we'll see where it lands. All right. Yeah. You've made it to question 13. Congratulations. (laughs) Okay. So I always ask something a little fun. Yeah, great. That's awesome. Uh, I imagine you've seen a lot of productions. Um, not Colgate specific, but just sure. general theater productions. Curious as to what was the worst production you ever saw? Is there one that stands out in your mind as being just awful, either in things went terribly wrong or it was just not a good performance? And to that, to the other end, what was, I guess, the most impactful theater moment um, that you can recall? Wow. Okay. Well, <laughs> um, 
it's funny that you should ask that because <laughs> I I just took a group of students to New York City um, in my modern drama class to see a a new musical called The Appointment. Okay. Um, and the reason that I bring this up is that it's I'm I'm not sure that it's the the most impactful thing I've ever seen, but it's um. It's certainly one of the best new works of theater I've seen coming out of the pandemic. And when I tell, when I try to describe it to you, it's going to sound like the worst show in the world. All right. Give it a um, shot. It's a clown musical about abortion. Sounds awful. Wow. Right? Yeah. It sounds awful. Yeah. Um, and I think my students were a little skeptical about getting on the bus with their crazy professor and, you know, riding <laughs> four and a half hours down to, to New York to see this show. Um, but – it the the alchemy of the show and the performers who put it together it it ends up being um like genuinely funny and entertaining and also really moving um and really i think open to different perspectives on the abortion debate mm. um and so that the conversations that i've been having with students about the show and the writing that they've been doing about it um in the weeks since have just been fantastic mm. so that's something that has been really energizing recently just because, you know, during the pandemic, um, live theater pretty much only existed on Zoom or video stream. And yeah. for me, at least, it, it didn't feel the same. Um, so and and to get to the first part of your question, um, I stayed an extra day in New York with um, with my wife and kids. And we went to see the play that goes wrong, which <laughs> started off about a decade ago on the West End in London, and it is a production in which everything that can possibly go wrong yes. goes wrong. Of course, all in a highly controlled way where you're you know, admiring the virtuosity of these designers and technicians and actors who can make everything go wrong, including the set literally collapsing without you know, anyone getting hurt or worse. <laughs> um, and that was just a tremendous amount of fun. Um, my kids loved it. Um, and it, you know, I, <laughs> I, I really, I would say that one of the challenges of living in central New York is not getting to see as much theater. Um, but it also, you know, it really motivates me to try to bring students to see things. So I do, I take students to New York as often as I can, um, sometimes to Syracuse where we have a wonderful, um, regional theater company at Syracuse stage. Yes. And, uh, you know, I've led an extended study to Hong Kong where we saw a performance almost every day for three weeks, which um, which was just great. Um, and the time in my life when I was seeing the most theater was probably the year that I spent traveling um, on a Watson Fellowship. And, and one of the um, one of the most gratifying service assignments I've had at Colgate, and this is not something I'm doing anymore, but for my first few years here, I was on the um, the Watson Fellowship nominating committee because Colgate is one of the participating schools in the Watson. And um, I, just seeing, you know, some of our best and most creative students and what they come up with for an independent year of travel and study abroad, it's amazing. Um, even when not all of them win the fellowship, I'm always like, how could you not have given it to all four of our nominees? Because they were all so incredible. Um, but during that year, I saw some of <laughs> some of the best and some of the worst theater that I've ever seen because I I would just go and see everything. Um, and you know the everything from uh, you know Sanskrit language theater in the south of India, which led to 
my first um, academic publication um, and was, you know, one of the most amazing theater experiences I've ever had to, um, you know, student performances um, in places like uh, Bangkok and Tokyo that were just awful. Um, but, you know, <laughs> uh, well worth seeing yeah. uh, anyway. And uh, it's always interesting uh, seeing a, a show where you don't speak the language because um, either you have to know the backstory or the the performance has to be really good. Mm. And if it's one of those two things, you can still understand everything that's going on, even if you don't speak the language. Mm. And so, um, <laughs> you know, I, I, uh, I tried as much as I could to, to learn a bit of the language everywhere that I traveled, but obviously that was a, that was a handicap for some of those experiences. So, um, that is a really fun question and brings back a lot of, a lot of memories of, um, things that I, you know, memories from the theater that I cherish and memories of things that, um, I, I kind of wish I had been able to walk out on, but really didn't feel like I could. <laughs> so. And that was 13. Yeah, great. Professor DeCombe, thank you so much for joining us. This was a lot of fun. I really appreciate the opportunity, and um, I hope your listeners uh, enjoy it. It's great. Thank you so okay, much. thanks. Tell your friends and family about the podcast. If you have any questions, please send them along to 13 at colgate.edu. That's 13, the number. And until next time, keep asking questions. 13 is a production of the Colgate University Office of Communications and Events. Episodes are recorded on campus in Lathrop Hall. Executive producer, Colgate Vice President for Communications and Events, L. Hazel Jack. Producer and host, Dan DeVries. And audio production by Brian Ness. Learn about all the happenings at Colgate at colgate.edu, colgatemagazine.com, and colgateresearchmagazine.com. <laughs>